They thought that it could be cured by the touch of a monarch. So a king could touch you and people would line up to be touched by the king, to be cured of the king's evil. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we've been talking about a bunch of really horrible diseases, and we're having a great time doing it. It's just so fun. The reason why it's fun, though, is because these are all uh, set in the past. These are historic names for diseases. And some of them have very colorful kinds of almost fun-sounding names like dropsy and carbuncle. And feels like every time you hear a disease these days and you know what it is, uh, you just have such dreadful associations with it. But uh, this is allowing us to have fun with something we know about, which is words. And you know a lot about word usage uh, from history. Well, especially from literature. I think one of the main reasons to know these is so that when you come across these odd words in the literary context, you have some idea what they're talking about. Right. And out of context, you might hear something like consumption, and it sounds like, um, well, the person's overconsumed with some kind of grief or something like that, and not really know that that means tuberculosis. So if you can associate the current term for it, you'll realize this actual severity of what it is. And it's not, it is an actual disease and it is actually something that you can die from, especially in the past. And so uh, you'll have a little bit better grip as it were. <laughs> we'll talk about grip in a minute, but, but we'll have a better idea of what's being expressed here. Well, in, in modern usage, uh, in business uh, reporting, uh, consumption is usually a very good thing. Consumption is up this month. <laughs> people are in a positive mood about the economy right yeah yeah and you can you can be uh happy about all, oh wow there's a lot more consumption than there was last year at this time and of course there's always those people scolding us for being so focused on consumption but they're minor members of the chorus and modern times, I think. Yeah, that's true. So what about some more of these? Uh, we have a term, green sickness. Green sickness? What's that? A green sickness. Yeah, I ran into this in Shakespeare originally and learned about it from Shakespeare text. Something that doesn't really exist exactly. It was supposed to be a set of symptoms that afflicted young virginal women uh, soon after puberty. So they're first getting their sexual desires aroused, but not fulfilled. And so it's characterized by a greenish pallor of the skin. That's where the green part comes from. And a cessation or irregularity of menstruation, which is common, of course, of women who are just beginning their menstruation. And weakness. Now, I found a description uh, didn't write down the source, but anyway, it says often accompanied by pica. Pica is the desire to, to eat dirt or other minerals, mm. uh, clay in particular, or other odd disturbances of appetite. And so if you had uh, an example of this, it could be called green sickness. 
med as a medical diagnosis, it disappears uh, quite abruptly in the early part of the 20th century. It was called chlorosis uh, for a long time, C-H-L-O-R-O-S-I-S. -O -O -S. So that was a more uh, sophisticated label for it than green sickness. Now, modern medical writers have uh, commonly identified it as a form of iron deficiency anemia with a profoundly reduced hemoglobin level. Uh, thought to result from combined dietary iron and protein deficiency. So that's this pica, the desire to, to eat minerals and so on. Mm. More recently, it's been pointed out that various other disorders, especially anorexia nervosa, uh, may produce symptoms similar to those of chlorosis. And so it may have been that what they were uh, observing in these young women was actually what we now call anorexia, the fear of being overweight and not eating enough. And so the greenness, the sickness, and even menstruation problems can be caused by not eating enough. Mm -hmm. uh, social and cultural attitudes toward women and menstrual physiology may have played an important role in designating chlorosis as a distinct clinical entity. But it was this, this young woman's disorder in the imagination. And of course, men being interested in sexy young women um, start associating it with virginity. And Shakespeare uses it to label the squeamishness of young women who uh, don't want to have sex. And uh, when her father is telling Juliet that uh, she's going to have to marry Paris, of course, he diagnoses her aversion to getting married as green sickness. He says, out you green sickness carrion. He's his curse. He says some really nasty things to her. Uh, but he, she says he's like a, a, a dead body almost as green sickness because she doesn't want to get married at that age, doesn't want to have sex. In Anthony and Cleopatra, the Queen of Egypt refers to her innocent salad days when I was green in judgment, cold in blood, didn't yet have sexual desires, and uh, her judgment was green. We still refer to salad days. A lot of times people now just use salad days to mean my youth when I was green, meaning green unripe and therefore healthy and prosperous and so on. So it has kind of come to have a different meaning. So one cure for green sickness was uh, the bleeding. And one way of, the most effective way of uh, getting that bleeding was rupturing the hymen in first intercourse. So sex was suggested as a treatment for green sickness, mostly in jokes. Mm. I don't know that doctors actually prescribed it, but it turns up in comic plays and so on. Pretty much self-explanatory. Mm. But uh, it's not something that uh, green sickness, if you run across it, you're going to understand right away. Yeah, it's pretty complicated. And it may not be, I mean, you said you say maybe anorexia, and it may be something else, too. It's not... Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, mineral deficiency. Yeah, we don't have a direct one-to-one -one correlation with what we might call it today. But it, it's, I guess, worth knowing about, right? If you come across it, green sickness, you'll have a better idea of what this is. That's a pretty typical male fantasy to imagine that uh, young women not wanting to have sex are suffering from a disease that needs to be overcome. Right, yeah. Well, the next one does have a sort of one-to-one -one correspondence, right, with some something today and that is grip we call it the flu yeah. which is short for influenza 
And, uh, but it was called GRIPPE for a very good reason, G-R-I-P-P-E usually, the spelling, because the sufferers are seized by the throat when you have flu. So you're gripped, gripped by the grip. Aha, uh-huh. but uh, what if you have a stomach flu? <laughs> yeah, well, you're still gripped. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. But people used to often speak of the grip. Right. I think flu replaced it in popular usage uh, after the great influenza epidemic at the end of World War One, because then it was called the Spanish influenza, and the newspapers were full of it. It was extremely lethal. It caused uh, more deaths than the war, and it was referred to in headlines, of course, as the flu. And people came to use that and mm-hmm. sounded much more scary than the grip. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, the word grip still is used somewhat contemporarily, uh, maybe a little bit older, some decades back. Uh, it may have shown up in some songs or something, some popular fiction. Uh, you might see the word grip still. Well, it occurs in a song that actually uh, sounds very much like a description of green sickness, which we were just talking about in Guys and Dolls. Ah. And Adelaide, one of the characters, sings this hilarious song about uh, the dangers of remaining unmarried. And I'm just going to read the lyrics to you because they're, they're quite funny. And it does eventually lead to grip. It says here, the average unmarried female, basically insecure due to some long frustration, may react with psychosomatic symptoms difficult to endure, affecting the upper respiratory tract. In other words, just from waiting around for that plain little band of gold, a person can develop a cold. You can spray her wherever you figure streptococci lurk. You can give her a shot for whatever she's got, but it just won't work. If she's tired of getting the fish eye from the hotel clerk, a person can develop a cold. It says here the female remaining single, just in the legal sense, shows a neurotic tendency, see note, chronic organic syndromes, toxic or hypertense involving the eye, the ear, the nose, and throat. In other words, just from worrying if the wedding is on or off, a person can develop a cough. You can feed her all day with the vitamin A and the bromo fizz, but the medicine never gets anywhere near where the trouble is. If she's getting a kind of name for herself and the name ain't his, a person can develop a cough. And furthermore, just from stalling and stalling and stalling the wedding trip, a person can develop la grip. When they get on that train to Niagara and she can hear church bells chime, the compartment is air-conditioned and the mood sublime, then they get off at Saratoga for the 14th time, a person can develop la grip. La grip, la post-nasal drip, with the wheezes and the sneezes and a sinus that's really a pip. From a lack of community property and a feeling she's getting too old, a person can develop a bad, bad cold. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, that that's perfect application to our discussion here. So, so yes, we, 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 we will find it, especially for uh, lyricists in search of a good rhyme, right? Right. And uh, with the reference of going to Niagara, we can just be grateful. The, the point is, she's not going, she's on the train to Niagara, but they don't get all the way to Niagara. They get off at Saratoga. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> for the 14th time, she wants to get married. Yes. But for those lyricists in search for a uh, uh, rhyme, we can just be glad that uh, with the reference to Niagara, that at the time Guys and Dolls was written, there was no such thing as Viagra. Uh, yes. <laughs> 
So that's fantastic. That brings together our first two entries here that we're talking about today, green sickness and <laughs> grip. Let's switch gears here and talk about something that's got an entirely different connotation, but a really strange sounding disease. Um, what is grocer's itch? Well, there were quite a few diseases that were associated with particular professions. Mm. And uh, grocer's itch is uh, one that we don't talk about anymore. By and large, grocers don't handle uh, the raw products. It all comes packaged in their suppliers, although uh, we do have uh, bulk bins in some grocery stores now. Our local Safeway is doing that. So as it's a skin disease caused by mites in sugar or flour. I think also we're, we're just much more sanitary these days. We're not so likely to have mites in our sugar and flour. But it was the mites that caused the disease, and that was called grocer's itch. Mm, yeah. Well, okay. Now here's one that uh, grocers suffer from grocer's itch. Do kings suffer from king's evil? No, you might think so. <laughs> king's evil is not something that kings got. Ah, okay. It was called in Latin regis morbus, and, or in French as mal de rey. A while later, mm-hmm. it could be scrofula, um, which was tuberculosis of the neck and lymph glands, and they thought that it could be cured by the touch of a monarch. So a, a king could touch you, and people would line up to be touched by the king to be cured of the king's evil. And from the Wikipedia article, we learn that from 1633 on, the Book of Common Prayer of the Anglican Church contained a ceremony for this, for the king to perform. Mm. It was traditional for the monarch, the king or queen, uh, to present to the touched person a coin, usually an angel a gold coin, the value of which varied from about six shillings to about 10 shillings. In England, this practice continued until the early 18th century and was continued by the Jacobite pretenders until the extinction of the House of Stuart with the death of the pretender Henry IX. King Henry IV of France is reported as often touching and healing as many as 1,500 individuals at a time. Queen Anne touched the infant Samuel Johnson in 1712. But King George I put an end to the practice as being too Catholic. Uh, they tended to be nervous about miracles. Mm. Uh, the kings of France continued the custom until Louis XV stopped it in the 18th century, though it was briefly revived by Charles X in 1825. So king's evil was simply the evil that was removed by kings. Now, can I practice a little editorial discretion here. Sure. You say that King Henry IV of France is reported as often touching and healing as many as 1,500 individuals. Yes, well, suppose that's what Wikipedia says. <laughs> so, did it work? That's what, the, re- they, did, that's what the report was. Were they were they healed by this? Yeah, did this good point, yeah. good point. But, uh, you know, when you get these, re- these reports, uh, sure. often they are mistaken. Yes, yes. Well, they do say it was reported, <laughs> so right. it doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to be a fact. Okay, well, next we have a, a whole group of fevers. We have hospital fever, jail fever, ship fever, spotted fever, putrid fever. What are, what are we talking about with all these different fevers? All names for typhus, a typhoid fever. Mm. It's highly communicable in overcrowded or unclean conditions like hospitals, jails, ships, mm. etc., 
And the name comes from the word uh, typhos in Greek, T-Y-P-H-O-S, meaning smoke or cloud. The idea being that you got the fever and you were sort of descending into a stupor that well, was like being surrounded by a cloud. But yeah, typhoid was extremely common and really deadly, uh, terrible disease. They still get outbreaks and conditions. We, we've heard of uh, outbreaks of typhoid, especially in Haiti, especially after the earthquake. Uh, has to do with the lack of uh, safe water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, actually you'd think that the fear of the water might be a good idea in that kind of context. Sure. Well, speaking of fear of the water, hydrophobia. Well, yeah, it's, it's horror of water. <laughs> yeah. But the, but it's not a, a, a desirable thing. I mean, you're talking about no. it might be might be good to fear the water if the water's contaminated. If you're going to get cholera or typhoid or something from it. But but uh, what is hydrophobia actually? It's an old name for rabies, and the idea was that the victims in the latter stages of the disease would have difficulty swallowing, and therefore when they were offered water, they might push it away. It's not because the they're not thirsty, uh, but it's because it's so painful that their throats and they can't swallow anything. So uh, it came to be thought that this was uh, people being averse to water, where actually it's the act of swallowing that they were actually averse to. So we use the word rabies today instead of hydrophobia. Mm -hmm. I see. Now, the, the next one. Uh, sounds pretty descriptive, but I still don't know what it is exactly. Infantile paralysis. Yeah, and that was uh, replaced by poliomyelitis and abbreviated to polio. It was associated especially with children, and that's why it was called infantile paralysis, and it's disease of paralysis. There were huge outbreaks of it in the 1950s. And, of course, uh, I remember lining up at City Hall to get my first dose of the uh, polio vaccine as a teenager. Mm -hmm. It was first recognized as a distinct disease in 1789, but it wasn't until 1908 that they figured out it was caused by a virus. And unlike uh, bacteria, viruses proved to be much tougher to deal with. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the development of the Sabin uh, polio vaccine was a huge breakthrough um, I've known people who had polio and, and suffered lifelong damage from it. Of course, it killed a lot of people, too. Sure. Yeah. Um, people were, children would be paralyzed so badly that they couldn't even breathe on their own and were put into these machines called iron lungs uh, that forced their lungs to expand and contract so that they continue, could continue to breathe. Fortunately, it's mostly exhausted except in a few pockets where radical religious groups, um, uh, Muslim mostly, have uh, decided that the attempt to inoculate the population against polio is actually an attempt to can infect them. They've actually killed doctors who work for the UN uh, who've, who tried to. This is in... Uh, Pakistan primarily, and I read that uh, also in East Africa there's been another outbreak of that. If they could just get everybody inoculated, uh, polio is one of those diseases that could just be eliminated. But so far, this, these political 
things have, have been a real problem. This was not helped by the Americans when they decided, when they were trying to track down bin Laden in Pakistan and uh, had some doctor say that he was uh, investigating the households to try to see if they needed to be inoculated and uh, he was actually spying to find out where bin Laden was living and um, that helped to create this superstition that then has been a real obstacle to eliminating polio. But uh, here in the U.S., uh, largely unheard of. Yeah, although you don't know with all this uh, fear of inoculations, the, of uh, vaccines that is, has been spreading among some very badly misinformed but well-educated people. Um, it's, it's scary. But yes, yeah, some of these diseases could spring back to life or have some currency still. And as you said, there are people, there are older people that we know today that are walking around who were victims of polio in their childhood. Well, and there you could get a passenger coming on an airplane from Pakistan who hasn't been inoculated. Yeah, but it's not like these older people are carrying the disease or infectious at this point. Right, right. They're just suffering from muscular degeneration or other right. complications. Well, all right, then how about a kink? Uh, that's a disease? I thought that was a 1960s British invasion band. <laughs> the kinks. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, probably the most common use today is for you know, sexual deviance. People who have a particular weird, what used to be called perversion, would be called their kink. And that's it's more of a neutral term than perversion. People will sometimes refer to their own kinkiness in having quirks of their personality, not always sexual. Um, All right, well, that, but, that establishes where the kinks get their name from, but what about a kink as a disease? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, the kink wasn't actually a disease so much as it was a, a feature of a disease. If you had a fit or a paroxysm caused by coughing uh, or laughter where you couldn't stop laughing, it was called a kink. Uh, and the idea is that it, for a moment it, you're, you can't get your breath because you're coughing or laughing so much, and that's called getting the kink. I see. So it's like you have a kink, kink in your throat, like a kink in a rope or something. So that's a kink. If we're talking about a disease, that's what a kink is. Um, and what about lockjaw? I actually hear lockjaw now and then still. Yes, and that's a spasm of the jaw where it seems to be locked, either open or closed, uh, which is you can't uh, move it and it's caused by tetanus. Um, and tetanus inoculations are very important. And it's one that uh, childhood shots don't suit you for every year. If you do cut yourself on something out in nature, particularly on a rusty nail or something like that, your doctor will often ask, when was your last tetanus shot? And they're recommended every 10 years. So what's one good reason to keep track of the shots you've had is to know whether you're still covered by your last tetanus shot. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to get lockjaw. Lockjaw is the very descriptive term for the symptom of tetanus. Yeah. The jaw will lock up. Right. Okay, well, we have another antiquated term, which sounds like could be a uh, a dance from the Caribbean, the lumbago. What, what, what's <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> uh, lumbago? Um, mm -hmm. The lumbar region in the body is the loins, 
and uh, people get confused about loins too because the Bible and, and other sources uh, use loin as a confuse it with a groin and wanting to dance around the subject of sexuality but the loins are actually more like uh, yeah, the part of the body on both sides of the spine between the lowest ribs and the hip bones and you run into it of course in, in the cut of meat from that area it includes the uh, vertebra of the loins loin of pork mm-hmm. But in literary uses, and particularly in the Bible, uh, you find loins being referred to as the sexual organs. It's sort of like what happened when breast came to mean, and breast and bosom both meant chest, and men had breasts and bosoms too before they got narrowed down to being what we now call a breast on women. And they were trying to avoid, say, teat or Mm -hmm. something vulgar. And so loin went through that uh, evolution as well. But uh, yeah, lumbago, it it often got extended to the back. And when I remember it turning up in advertisements for various painkillers, say ointments you could rub on, maybe Bengay, for for some reason, always advertised in the comic pages when I was a kid. And um, lumbago was one of the things it could treat, but that was understood to mean pain in the back, probably more spinal than lumbar. But anyway, a little bit antiquated. As a term. Mm-hmm. What about the the next one up? I, I'm not sure how to pronounce this one. I guess megrum. Can, yeah, megrum. Well, that's a severe headache, migraine, and you run into it in a lot of old literature, especially in the Renaissance, uh, that somebody has a megrum, and it, it's a English respelling of the French word migraine, which is our migraine, modern spelling, spelled the same way, M I G. R-A-I-N-E. Now, I used to think that this had something to do with the dose of medicine you took to cure it. So I, I, because you would take a grain of something, and then if you took a half a grain, it would be a migraine. But no, that that's my personal uh, contribution to popular etymology. It happens to be a, a, a located pain in the head on one side of the cranium. And so the cranium is the grain part. And the me refers to one half of the brain is clearly divided into two halves. If you've ever looked at a, a picture of a brain or seen one. So a spot headache like that would be a me going up a half cranium headache. But it lost its roots when the English decided to respell it as migrum. Uh, who would ever guess what the <laughs> origins were? Right, yeah. Well, that's, okay, some interesting etymology, and that's what we'll end on this time. Not that this conversation is giving me a migraine, but I think we can wrap it up. I want to talk about some more of these next time. I think we still have several that we can talk about, these old disease names. Yeah, we're only halfway through the alphabet. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. For patient listeners, they can wait till next time to hear what the second half has in store. This is all very interesting. So thank you, Paul. Talk to you later, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.